0: Welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in Verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. If you're joining us in our worship service this morning via the internet, we welcome you to the Hayward Seventh-day Adventist Church with the special dynamic of the 1888 message. Today our message is on solving the problem of heartache. At the conclusion of our service, I want to invite those who in our special little Bible class, The Faith of Jesus, to join us up front here in which we'll pray together and read some scriptures of encouragement. How to put the pieces of your life back together. Maybe you have lost your job, maybe lost a loved one, lost your dreams, whatever it may be, You've lost something or someone very dear to you. And when you lost whatever it was that you had set your heart on, you just felt like a a deep-sinking feeling inside. You didn't want to eat. You didn't want to sleep. You didn't want to smile. You couldn't even walk as fast as you usually did before. You felt as though the end of your world had come. How do you handle heartache? How do you handle despair? Are you tired of carrying the guilt around with you, of feeling like you have a dead end life? Do you do it? Do you get rid of that feeling through amusements and through drowning your your troubles, through surfeiting? Feeling, are you like a human discard? Maybe needing a drink so you can cope? There is a life giving Savior, dear friend, who is very near to you. He's already your Savior. And if you don't stop him, he has already redeemed you, and he has a right to do that because he loved you. And he has died as the payment for your sin. We're talking here about the real kind of death for you. He's already given you the gift of salvation, not merely offered it. You say you're not sure about that? Well, then just consider Are you breathing? Are you alive? You wouldn't be if he hadn't died that real death for you. If he had not really died that real death, your second death, you wouldn't be living and breathing right now. Your present life is a proof that he has plans for you. He has a future for you, and he plans good for you, and eternal life as well. That's Jesus, the all-powerful, the Son of God, It's someone, he's someone for you to really take notice of. And that's true. You can say no to him, and you can just beat him off. He's going to honor your choice if you do that. But if you don't stop him, he's going to take the initiative, and he's going to lead you all the way out of your despair and your heartache. And he will give you happiness, not just way off in the future, but here and now. Plus, heaven and eternal life. You say, Well, that sounds just too good to be true. Well, be careful before you turn away, because he has paid a tremendous price to make this true, and that is the price of his blood. And I have shocking but very good news for you. Believers have recently been making some uh, fantastic discoveries in the Holy Scriptures. It's like the dense fog is finally beginning to lift. And the bright sunshine is coming through again. This is nothing about dusty old manuscripts found in some desert cave dug out of the sands of Egypt. It's about discoveries in the Holy Word itself. Good news, better than most people have even thought could be. Enormous progress has been made in scientific discoveries at all levels, and we're all beneficiaries of that. So why shouldn't there be equally marvelous progress in our understanding of the good news of the gospel? It brings such joy to human lives. And the reason is that God is alive, and He is more with it than the Internet or tomorrow's television newscast. He's like a personal father to everybody who is willing to let him be like that father who can be trusted. He is infinite, and so he treats everyone as if he or she were the only person on earth. And he has nothing but goodwill for undeserving people who desire a better life but don't know how to find it. And the good news is what the Savior has done, is doing, And will finish doing for us and in us, not what He might do, maybe, perhaps, or if. He became the world's Savior, not merely wanting to be provided, we do the impossible. He is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And actually, we humans don't know how to get out of the mess, that sin, has made of our lives. The Savior has stepped in. He has taken the initiative to make things right for us. You know, for a long time, most people have thought that after Jesus' resurrection, that He went to heaven to have some R&R, some relaxation and recreation, an extended vacation. Why, we often think that He did His part so long time ago, and now It's up to us. We need to get our act together. Stop sinning. Do lots of good works. But believers are discovering in the Bible that Jesus has never taken a vacation of any kind since he went back to heaven. He is on duty in his office 24-7, which the Bible speaks of. His office is the sanctuary in heaven. And he has been there without a break since he went back. And his full-time employment is saving sinners like you and me. That's his office work. How does he do that? He is rebuilding human wrecks. Yeah. He takes them into his wrecking yard and he rebuilds them from bottom up reaching down for the worst down-and-out backsliders. He is lifting up throwaways out of the ditch. He is listening to their distraught cries and their prayers at 3 o'clock in the morning when they can't sleep, and he is whispering hope to depressed alcoholics and drug addicts, and he's convincing teenagers that he understands and that he cares, and he is urging would be suicides not to do it. He is pricking the consciences of lazy, selfish saints. He's melting hardened prostitutes. He is healing broken hearts. He's encouraging prisoners. He's giving abused children hope. I'd say he's pretty busy, wouldn't you? right on. Very busy. But not too busy to be closer to you and more true to you than a best friend could be. And the Bible describes his day and night work as that of a great high priest. I suppose the best modern equivalent for that would be a divine psychiatrist or physician of our souls. And although he was sinless, he took our fallen, sinful nature. He met temptation as we must meet it. He had to say no to self just like we have to. And the Bible opens a window into his secret soul in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. A few verses there, Hebrews 2 verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So we see that Jesus' specialty is healing people of all kinds of heartaches, of all kinds of hurts, even from their childhood, problems that they're not responsible for. But he never excuses us for going on in sin. He heals, he forgives, he cleanses, he sets us free like an inmate walking out of the jail. And many of us have missed the point of what the New Testament says about the realities of life. The common idea is that all men and women are born doomed to be lost unless they take the initiative to do something right first. In other words, the common idea is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross doesn't do anybody any good until He does something about it first. And if you are saved at last, the idea is it is due to your own initiative, and if you are lost at last, that will be due to God's initiative. But the real truth is that if anyone is saved at last, it will be due entirely to God's initiative. And if anyone is lost at last, it will be due to his own initiative in resisting Or rejecting what God has already given him or her. And everybody is not born doomed to be lost. Everybody is not born doomed to be lost. Everybody is born to be saved. And will be unless he does something to counter or to thwart what God is actively doing for him or her. Well, I'll tell you, this boils down to some really good news idea that it is actually hard to be be lost and easy to be saved if one understands the truth of the gospel. Well, this seems beyond belief to some people's minds, for they have always thought that it was just the exact opposite. And if one has the idea that Christ has only made a provision for us to be saved, that his sacrifice is only available for us, that it does us no good unless we do something first. Inevitably, the idea pervades our minds that God is standing back in the shadows, leaving us to our own foolish ways and doing nothing to help us until we first get our lives straightened out and our act together. And believing that, many people say, So what? God couldn't care less if I don't bother Him I'm not his favorite. I'm a failure. Here's nothing going nowhere. But the reality is that he is actively taking us by the hand each day and saying, come on, let's go to heaven. And while we're at it, let's have heaven here on earth first. And the only way not to be led there all the way is to resist him and to beat him off and to slap him away. Here it is in Steps to Christ, one of my favorite little books written by a favorite author, Ellen White, on page 27. The sinner may resist this love, may refuse to be drawn to Christ, but if he does not resist, he will be drawn to Jesus A knowledge of the plan of salvation will lead him to the foot of the cross in repentance for our sins, which have caused the sufferings of God's dear Son. He is touched. He's touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, our infirmities. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. The Bible urges us, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help. In time of need, we just need to learn how to come. But yes, there's a catch. It's not that you have to do something first. Rather, you must see something. You've got to realize that you are a sinner before coming boldly can make any sense. For He is a Savior who doesn't save anybody but sinners. If you think that you are a decent person, good enough on your own, you're going to feel like uh, out of place trying to come. To him, it's sinners that he has come to save. To Jesus, sinners are first-class citizens. To Jesus, they are the VIPs. And he says, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Matthew 9:13. He must have said that I think with a tongue in cheek because he knew very well that the only kind of people there are on this planet are sinners even if they don't think they are. But they have known it because God's law has penetrated all of the barriers that they have erected around their souls and it has convinced them of sin. And they are called, and Jesus really, in these words, was pressing the thorn into the self-complacent thinking of so-called good people, making fun of those pathetic saints who think that they are righteous and don't know what a mess they are. In the sight of heaven and on the stage of life before others, In honest truth, Paul put it in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God, they have all gone out of the way. And there are times when the fog lifts and we see this truth more clearly than at other times because the Holy Spirit presses home the conviction that We are all the same by nature sinners who can't save ourselves. Not one of us by nature is any better than all of the rest because we're made all out of the same dough, as far as Martin Luther's wisely said it. All the world, Paul said, has become guilty before God. It's written all over all of us. Our very name is Adam which is the Bible name for all mankind. Adam was a sinner, and when he sinned in the beginning, he was the entire human race in himself, so that the whole human race sinned in him. And all the sin in the world was therefore included in Adam's sin when he sinned. There is not a human on earth who has not come from Adam with his sinful nature, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3, verse 23. But the good news, and look it up there in Romans 3 with me for a moment. Will you look it up in Romans 3 and verse 24? The good news in the next half of that same sentence where it says all have sinned, it says that all are being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And thank God for that. The second half of that sentence more than cancels out the first half. How is that? Well, the word justified, you know, that means to be straightened out, to be put right, to be vindicated. Now, you remember, only sinners need to be straightened out. Okay? It's like when I was looking into my closet yesterday and I'm going to come to church and I want to have an iron shirt. And all of those shirts that are hanging up there just sat too long in the dryer. All kinds of wrinkles. And so I selected one and put it on the ironing board and waited until the iron got really hot and I applied the iron to it But, you know, those wrinkles didn't go away. So it required an abundance of steam. You know what I'm talking about? Well, if you send your laundry off to the laundromat, you wouldn't know about this. But I ironed my own shirt, see? And I've learned the trick of applying the steam. And I just kept pressing the steam button until all of the wrinkles were out of the shirt. And that's the way it means to be justified by faith. There's a lot of wrinkles in our lives. A lot of heartache, isn't there? A lot of sin. And Jesus justifies it. He justifies us not exclusively by forgiving sin, but by restoring us so that we don't want to sin. We see His love which motivates us to walk in His life. So you look carefully there at Romans 3, verse 24, because all this was done before we ourselves could possibly do anything good. It says, all have sinned and all are being justified freely by His grace. He justified us, He put us straight, He redeemed us, He saved us as the human race without any contribution from ourselves. And it is wrong to say or think that our faith saves us. Faith is not our Savior. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So that agrees with what we just read here in Romans 3.24. We were saved before we had faith, but our faith is what grabs a hold of that blessed fact and makes it real in our own personal experience. So the good news is clear here. In Romans chapter 3, 23 and 24, that all are justified. That means the entire human race. And this truth is the cure for heartache. It's the cure for depression, for despair, for low self-respect. Believe it, and henceforth you cannot help but hold your head high anytime, anywhere. Jesus would have died. He would have given his blessed, holy, sinless life for just you, dear heart. That is the value of your soul. That should give you a sense of self-respect that leads you to the cross, that self may be crucified there. That will do it. If anything will do it, that alone will do it. Well, someone says... Someone says uh, there, how can that be? How can this happen? I'm not a real Christian, never have been. The answer is that the entire human race was in Christ as the second Adam, just as it was in the first Adam. Therefore, you were included when Jesus was baptized. The Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He was talking about us all. He was talking about you, for He counted us in Him when Jesus was baptized. A writer who understood this says that the word embraces humanity. God spoke to Jesus as our representative. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The all are justified by His grace. Note that the word faith is not here in Romans three twenty four. Your faith or your lack of faith had nothing to do with Christ giving His life for you, justifying you by His sacrifice. And remember that grace is not meant for good people, but for those who don't deserve it. Romans 4, 4 says, To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. This accomplishment redeems everyone in Christ Jesus wait a minute all this is given free to bad people yes the bible says all if your father in heaven makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust it must include bad people that has to be the meaning the meaning of grace or it isn't grace. Imagine the surprise that this is going to be. Many millions haven't realized what the Son of God has done and given to them. And the very shock of learning this will capture their attention, for most have never been told that Christ accomplished such a feat as this for them. Even atheists are going to be shocked, for no one could have invented this idea. But now, We're taking a deep breath. This is shocking to all of us as well. What evidence do we have in the Bible that the good news is this good? When the Father sent His Son into the world, He was given explicit instructions of what His job description was, and that is to save the world. And Jesus understood this. If you look at John 12, 47, he tells us what his job description is. He said, I did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world and to give my life a ransom for many, he says in Matthew twenty twenty-eight. And when he was about to die, he prayed, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And probably the first individuals to recognize this amazing truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world were those Samaritans of the village of Sychar who said in John 4, verse 42, we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. They got the idea. He's not only the Savior of the Jews or of a handful of Gentiles who believe and obey but He is everybody's Savior. And as the last Adam, He became us, as truly as Adam was us. And thus, when He died in our place, He actually died for us, as us. You are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power, Colossians 2, verse 10. You died in Him. You were resurrected in Him. You will live eternally in Him. He won't force you to be saved against your will. You can say no and forfeit your birthright as Esau sold his for a mess of lentil stew. But many will do that, but the birthright has been yours because you're a member of the human race and you're not an exception Are you a sinner? You are the reason why he came to do this. Can you believe that you have been redeemed? That's what the Bible is saying. Is the gift given to us already? That's what the words grace and given freely mean. Now, wait a minute, says someone. Isn't there something I must do? Yes, of course, something big. Something very important. You must believe this good news that you have heard and let it motivate your soul. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's true and no one has a right to add any words that Jesus did not say such as, you must do this or you must do that or that nothing happens unless you take the initiative because Jesus' words say that He has taken the initiative. He has loved. He has given. But this does not mean that faith is just some mere mental assent to an equation like you believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. To believe, according to Jesus' words, means to appreciate what it cost God to love us like that and to give His Son to die for us. And this is the much bigger truth that many are now beginning to discover in the Bible. Such faith has a grip upon the human heart. Nothing is left over for this old selfish world. There is a heart appreciation that is big because you realize that Jesus did something big for you. The death that he died for us was not merely enduring some physical pain for a few hours, which was terrible enough. He died what the Bible calls the second death, the death without personal hope, the pouring out of his soul unto death, says Scripture, Isaiah. In other words, out of love for us, he gave himself to go to hell, truly giving himself forever. The most wonderful hero in the world who died for somebody else couldn't go that far. And on his cross, he felt to the fullest the pain of abandonment And he sobbed out to God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you have ever felt heartache, you have just had a modicum, a little bit of what Jesus went through. He had real despair on the cross. There we see the width and the length and the depth and the height of love. It's agape, a love as different from what we call love as day is from night. And when our shriveled up little hearts begin to appreciate that, then we begin to live. I mean, really live. It motivates us. We're like dead people who are resurrected. In fact, our hearts have never been so moved before. We don't realize our potential for loving people who we never dreamed we could love. The tremendous capacity for devotion to Christ we didn't know is buried deep in our hearts. This discovery about yourself is magnificent. It is a resurrection to new life right here and now. To have faith is not merely to trust the Lord like you trust the bank or your insurance company. You can trust these institutions and still remain as selfish as you were before because such trust is very self-centered. But the John three sixteen idea of faith solves that problem and lifts our natural self-centered hearts out of a dark cave into the sunlight and faith is a heart-melting appreciation of what it costs the Son of God to save us. And I say that Laodicea needs massive dose, doses of that medicine for its lukewarm disease. And it needs it constantly and undiluted in order that it may have a New Testament, New Covenant appreciation, a New Covenant experience. God's church, God's people in Latin America, in the Philippines, in Asia, in Europe, yes, in Central America and in North America need massive doses of the uplifting of the cross of Christ and His agape love. Because Laodicea is not a bad church to be a part of. No, it's not. It means the people who are judged or vindicated. In other words, Jesus' desire is to vindicate. How about iron out the wrinkles? Jesus wants to iron out the wrinkles of Laodicea and declare her vindicated. The only bad thing about being a part of this last church is that it's lukewarm. It's sick. And the medicine for it is massive doses of medication of agape love. And that only comes by uplifting of the cross of Christ. Because it's there that self is crucified with Christ. And all self-centeredness in our worship goes away. But it must happen again and again and again and again. In order to override human nature, our sinful nature. Massive doses. The church needs it on every level Laodicea is not just the lay people. Laodicea is the leadership of the church. And on every level, it needs massive doses of the cross. And they have agape, a love of Christ. Well, we know from Jesus' own words here in John 3.16, the two things that God did was that He loved, God so loved the world that He gave. God does the loving He does the giving, the initiative, and that the consequence of that is that we respond by saying amen. We believe. That's what moves the love in our hearts to respond to Him. And that faith works through love, Paul says. Your motives and your conduct transform from the inside out. And don't get discouraged if progress seems slow. The Holy Spirit is working if you do not resist. In other words, faith couldn't even exist unless we, first of all, there was the revelation of that love at the cross, agape. And all of this is just another way of saying that salvation is by grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Isaac Watts put it in hymn form in these lyrics, So might I hide my blushing face when His dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay this debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away, tis all that I can do. If faith works through love, then there is no end to the good works that it will continually motivate us to do. Here's the victory over every kind of evil that the devil tempts us to do. No addict is beyond the Savior's reach. This is the best five-day plan to stop smoking that, well, no human being can think it up. Only God can. It's the divine plan to stop smoking to deliver the addict, to appreciate the cost of the Savior's death for you upon the cross. Faith itself is a change of heart. It reconciles an alienated, selfish heart to God. And since no one can be reconciled to God and not at the same time be reconciled to God's Ten Commandments, such faith immediately makes the believer obedient to all of the Ten Commandments And they become joyous promises to one's heart. The love of Christ supplies an infinitely powerful motivation. And from then on, it's not a matter of, what do I have to do in order to be saved? But how can I thank you enough for saving my soul from hell itself? That's the motivation. It's an entirely new situation. For behold, all things have become new. All things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ Jesus, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And that last is also part of the good news. You will become a helper, and in some wonderful way, maybe you can't understand, you will be able to proclaim to somebody else the word of reconciliation that has so changed you. Maybe It will seem to you a very tiny bit of help, but the Holy Spirit will enable you to give it. If God picked you up and set you in heaven itself, you couldn't be happier because there is no thrill known to humans more delightful than that of being the channel through which this life flows to another human being. You can now lift up the cross to some poor soul and help them see the agape of love for them." And this is the sanctuary message. The sanctuary message is the divine physician helping us to see the cross in its pristineness, in its beauty, in all of its heart-transforming and converting power. A giving up totally on self and self-renewal and self-development and a complete clinging to Jesus and His cross alone. Amen. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God, which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.